Fantastic. Thank you, Nathan. We appreciate you reading the Bible for us this morning and for the whole family to be involved in the background there as well. Uh, great to see. Um, as Elliot said, I've got the opportunity to, to lead us in our last uh, message in Jeremiah uh, this week, which is really exciting because we've come to the topic of hope, uh, which is always a really exciting thing to talk about. So for someone of my vintage, uh, one of the great films of all time it has to be The Shawshank Redemption. Uh, it's a movie that I've watched many, many times now, based on a book by Stephen King, actually. Uh, it's set in the bleak and brutal Shawshank prison in the middle of last century. Uh, and it's a movie which is fundamentally about hope. That's its greatest theme. Uh, and when it was released in 1994, there was a promotional poster that came out with it. And, and the header of that promotional poster said this, Fear can hold you prisoner, hope can set you free. And now that's not just a great tagline for a prison movie, although it absolutely is. Uh, it actually also reflects the reality that hope is the opposite of fear. I heard someone say the other day, which I thought was quite profound, fear is the anticipation of suffering, whereas hope is the expectation of future good. Again, I love that. It, it, it kind of sounds like something that you could market on some fridge magnets. Um, but at the same time, I also want to dig a little bit deeper than just kind of pithy sayings. Because uh, when we dig a little bit deeper, it seems to me that feeling hopeful is easy when things are already good and seem like they're just going to get better. Anyone can feel hopeful in that kind of scenario. And it seems to me also that that, uh, that the kind of hope has morphed into this unrealistic expectation that things are always going to be good. And it's not surprising that those of us who have grown up in Western culture in the last 50 years might feel that way. I mean, for, for most of us, life has been pretty good for the most part. Things seem to work out for us most of the time. For some, it's taken a global pandemic to realise that life doesn't just go on an upward trajectory the whole time. And while we're starting to feel some optimism here in Australia about our situation, it's certainly true that our whole world, including the developed Western nations who've had life so good for so long, have collectively had this moment in which we've probably felt more fear than we have hope. We've probably experienced more grief than we've experienced joy. And this is completely unusual for us, particularly growing up in Western culture. And so it presents an opportunity for us to ask some really tough questions, which begin with how do we discover and how do we hold on to hope when things seem bleak? In times of sadness and uncertainty, when we feel powerless and not in control, we are so used to feeling in control. But what about when we don't? When we have a deep sense of longing for things to be better? The opportunity is this, that perhaps it's only in those moments that we can truly understand or appreciate what hope really is. And it forces us to ask this question as well, which I want to focus on today, and that is how is our Christian hope unique? What is it about our faith that sustains us in times, in ways that our prevailing culture and its promises simply can't sustain us? And fortunately, Scripture, which we're going to come and look at, isn't written in a series of fridge magnets. It's not just a whole bunch of cliches. It's actually written for us 
into real messy situations with messy people and messy contexts so that we can understand ourselves and discover what real hope looks like in real life. And I think Jeremiah, what we've been looking at over these last few weeks, does that beautifully for us. And, and certainly on this theme of hope, uh, it helps us to understand what hope looks like at times, in times of darkness, in times of uncertainty. And we just had Jeremiah 31 verses 1 to 14 read out for us. And we're not going to look at that again right now. But what that passage does is it paints this beautiful picture of future expectation. It is a passage all about hope. But as we read those beautiful words and kind of imagine this beautiful picture of God's future, we can't forget, as has been made so clear to us over the last few weeks, that this is spoken into a time of significant suffering. This was a dark time for the people of God. Displaced from their homes, ruled by a foreign power who loved nothing more than to parade their own gods in front of their captors. Without any immediate signs that things were going to change, all that they knew to be true about life, about home, about God seemed to be lost. The exile for the people of God was a theological crisis of the highest order. The people of God were beaten and bruised and left wondering whether God was actually good. Was he even willing to save them? And was God actually great? Was he even powerful enough to save them? This was a massive theological crisis. So you can imagine then, with the people of God feeling that way, that these messages of hope into darkness, into doubt, into uncertainty... These messages of hope were so crucial for the people of God to sustain them. Like drought-breaking rain, they were signs of life. They were signs of a future beyond their current circumstance. And even though, and the passage makes this blatantly clear, that even though their immediate circumstance looked bleak, God promises to bless them. He's not forgotten them. The message comes through loud and clear, this will not last forever. God is both willing and able to save. He will ultimately return them to the land he'd always promised. This is a beautiful picture of hope couched in a time of crisis. And that's why I love the way the passage starts. It starts with three beautiful words. If you've still got your Bible open in front of you, it starts with these three beautiful words, at that time. While it might not be today and it might not be tomorrow, it might not be 20 years' time, a time is coming, and they can be sure of that. A time is coming when God will redeem his people. God's covenant promise to his people remains unshakable. And the passage also points to God's character, something else that doesn't change. God's kindness, God's love. It's everlasting. It's unfailing. And maybe they couldn't see that right there in that moment, in their context, but it hadn't changed. And Jeremiah was reminding them of that fact. But then he goes on to paint this this magnificent picture of what the future looks like. It's going to be dancing. There's going to be setting up of homes. There's going to be planting gardens. And then we get this image of, of watchmen who would normally kind of 
be at the city gates uh, and yelling out and crying out and warning people of impending enemies coming to, to raid. Instead, the watchmen are standing at the city gates and they're welcoming people in. And not just anyone, they're welcoming everyone in. The blind, the lame, the pregnant, even the most vulnerable people in the community will be there. And there'll be grain and there'll be new wine and there'll be olive oil. There'll be tears, but they won't be tears of mourning. They're tears of repentance because their mourning has turned into gladness. This is a picture of joy. It's a picture of peace, of right relationships between God and his people and the whole of creation. This is a picture of shalom, of human and cultural flourishing. This is what God's future looks like. Imagine the hope that it brought to the people living in exile, going through this theological crisis, wondering where God was. Is he good? Is he great? This kind of vision answers those questions. But funnily enough, before we get too carried away and start to think, well, God's people are suffering and God brings redemption straight away, all of this is very immediate, we have to again remember the context here. We need another reality check in a sense. Because despite this message of hope, of rescue, many of the people that actually heard this message wouldn't actually live long enough to see it come true. The exile would last for 70 years. And even when a little remnant did return to Jerusalem, it certainly wasn't what they expected. In fact, there's a a little passage in Ezra chapter 3 which captures this well. Some of the older priests who had lived long enough to have known what the old temple was like and were now coming back into the land and were there at the laying of the foundations of the new temple, they wept when they saw what was happening. And these were most probably tears of disappointment. It wasn't what they expected. It was nowhere near its former glory. And I think what that does is it points to something that's really important to understand about about real hope, about Christian hope. And that is that it's not contingent upon immediacy. That God doesn't rescue these people straight away. As much as I'm sure they wanted that, the rescue doesn't come straight away. God didn't, well, things don't just work out perfectly uh, like they do at the end of a 30-minute TV sitcom. It doesn't work that way. That's not what Christian hope is. Christian hope's not founded in the idea that God will just magically take all of our problems away in, in an instant. And if he doesn't, well, he can't really be true after all. That's not the way it works. The vision of hope that Jeremiah paints, the vision of God's future, lifts the eyes of God's people beyond their current circumstance beyond their individual predicament. And it points to the future. It points to a coming kingdom, to a coming king. And it points even further than that. It points forward to the renewal of all things. Which for us living in 2020 is really helpful because that helps us to understand or get closer to answering this question of, of how is our hope, how is Christian hope unique? And I just want to give a few reflections about that theme. What is unique about the hope that we hold as God's people? And the first thing I think that's really important to reflect on is that Christian hope can be sustained 
through every season in life. And this is really important in the context of the prevailing culture in which we live. Because when things get really difficult, when we experience suffering, perhaps the best thing that our Western culture has to offer us is distraction. You know, you watch enough Netflix, you eat enough food, you drink enough, you lose yourself in an online world for long enough, and we can at least be distracted for a few hours from the darkness that swirls around us. But ultimately, we know that can't sustain us, right? Or perhaps we gravitate towards destination addiction. I think I do this sometimes. We can gravitate towards this idea or this preoccupation with the idea that that happiness is in the next place or the next job or with the next partner. It's the next thing that's going to make me feel better. And that's where our hope lies. But most of the time, that ultimately leads to disappointment. And disappointment is just a sign that our hopes are too often misplaced. We put them in the wrong place. But real hope, Christian hope, the kind of hope that we want to hold on to goes beyond empty optimism or the power of positive thinking, that everything is just going to work out okay, or that the next thing will be the thing that fixes us in our situation. Christian hope, real hope, biblical hope, it allows time. It allows room for lament. I came across um, the story of a woman named Kate Bowler during the week. Um, and for all intents and purposes, Kate was living what might be described by most people as, as a blessed Christian life. She had most things that she wanted. Life was going perfectly right up until the time that she was diagnosed with stage four colon cancer at age 35, which was a massive wake up call for her. And as the reality of her situation hit home, she realized that no amount of optimism, no amount of positive thinking was gonna shrink her tumors. Ultimately, she had to find her hope in something other than just thinking positively about life. And ultimately, it actually led her to write a book, which, which again, has got a brilliant title. It's called Everything Happens for a Reason and Other Lies I've Loved. And I don't think this, this next quote that I'm going to read out doesn't come from that book, I don't think, but uh, she, she now reflects a lot about hope um, within the context of, of suffering. And this is something that she wrote recently. And I just thought it was a beautiful encapsulation of what Christian hope is really all about. She says this about her situation. I used to feel ambivalent about hope. I didn't know how to feel hopeful when my reality felt bleak. Too often... Hope too often is conflated with empty optimism. But Christian hope is like an anchor that God tosses way out into the future and reels us towards it, pulling us from the ache and drawing us towards beauty and restoration and brightness. This reminds us that we are really going somewhere. And that is the language of hope I can get on board with. I love that. There's something very real about that, but that is a beautiful encapsulation of what our Christian hope is all about. It's not empty optimism. It's not positive thinking. It's not contingent on our immediate circumstance, but rather, and this is crucial, rather it is grounded in the character, the presence, and the promises of God. It's grounded in who God is, how he's been faithful in the past, how he brings comfort 
in the present and in his beautiful vision of a restored future. That's where our hope is grounded. I was really fortunate a couple of years ago uh, when travel was a thing that we did um, to uh, have uh, an opportunity to go to Chicago and attend a conference where one of the keynote speakers was a guy named Gary Hagen, who I'd, I'd known about for some time, but it was the first opportunity I'd got to hear him speak live, um, and I loved it. Uh, Gary is the, the founder and the CEO of the International Justice Mission. And if you don't know much about IJM, their work revolves around protecting the poor from violence and exploitation in the developing world. And their work is particularly dangerous. They work in some of the most dangerous communities around the world. And in 2016, uh, Gary got news, he was in, he's based in the US, he got news that three workers that were involved in the work of IJM were tragically killed in Kenya. Their worst fears were realised that something like this might happen with the work that they were involved in. So Gary jumped straight on a plane from the US um, flying into Africa. And the way that he describes it was the whole time that he was on the plane, that whole journey, he was convinced that this would be enough to, to see the whole work fall apart in Kenya, that people would abandon the cause in the face of such fear and uncertainty. But actually, when he got off the plane in Kenya, he found that the exact opposite were true. He found a group of people that were strangely at peace. They were absolutely committed to each other and the work in front of them. That were still hopeful, despite their circumstance. And a community of people who gave each other courage in the face of palpable fear. He discovered a community that weren't ready to run away, but were up for the challenge. And he was just blown away by this community of people. But what he reflected on was the fact that at the centre of this community was Jesus. And that this community was like a living embodiment of John 16, 33, where Jesus says this, I've told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. They were a living embodiment of that. They were convinced of God's faithfulness. They believed that Jesus was present with them and they were absolutely committed to the coming of his kingdom. And one of Gary's key messages out of all that, his key takeaways, if you like, were that we need to forge communities of courage. And that little turn of phrase has just stuck with me uh, over these years, to forge communities of courage, which I think for our purposes today is kind of interchangeable with this idea that we need to forge communities of hope because it takes courage to be hopeful, right? And it takes courage to be hopeful in the face of our circumstance and despite our circumstance at times. But what we desperately need in times like this, but not just in times like this, we need this all the time. We need communities of hope that can remind each other what God has done, that God is with us, that God is with us to the, to the, to the, the length that Jesus waded himself into our mess, that God sends his spirit to comfort us in every circumstance. And we need communities of hope to remind each other that God's work in us and God's work in the world is far from done yet.
God has a beautiful picture of the future he has in store. And that's the last thing I really want to talk about this morning. And that is that God's future can invade our present moment. And what that does is that it calls us out to be people of hope for our world. Because thankfully, and I'm not much of an English scholar, but I know this much. Thankfully, our story is not a Shakespearean tragedy. Lament and pain and suffering are not the final word in our story. And in fact, the picture of God's future starts to develop in the Old Testament in passages like the one that was read out before. Jeremiah 31 is a beautiful example of that. But there's many others within the Old Testament that start to point us forward about what God is going to do in the future. And of course, that picture continues to build in the coming of Jesus and in the writings of Paul to the New Testament church. And they come to a crescendo, of course, in the book of Revelation, in the last couple of chapters of the Bible, where we see this vision start to unfold of what God's future looks like. And when we hold all of these pieces together through Scripture, what we see is that our story tells us that a time is coming when heaven and earth will unite and Jesus himself will come and heal all that is wrong with the world in us and in our world where we as God's restored people living in God's restored creation will experience true shalom, life as God has always intended. And it's this vision of God's future which is at the very core of our hope as God's people. And it's this kind of perspective when we allow God's future to invade our present moment that enables us to be agents of God's hope in our world now. While we wait for God's kingdom to come in all its fullness, we do not wait idly. It's not like we're kind of sitting in a doctor's surgery, scrolling through our phone, just waiting for the future to come. We do not wait by idly, but we're called to live with anticipation of what's to come. And and importantly, We're called to live out in anticipation and hope under the noses of our community so they get to see what it's like in this present moment. Tim Keller really helpfully, I think, describes it this way in trying to sum up the message of Revelation 21 and 22 and what God's future looks like for us and what it means for us today. He says this, Revelation 21 and 22 make it clear that the ultimate purpose of redemption is not to escape the material world, but to renew it. God's purpose is not only saving individuals, but also inaugurating a new world based on justice, peace and love, not power, strife and selfishness. In the end, brokenness, injustice, violence, greed, lust and all sin and its effects will be overcome wiped out so the world can be recreated in harmony with God's original intent. And this is really important. He then goes on to say, this vision of the future should infect how we imaginatively engage our work, our relationships, our society. What he's saying is, it's supposed to make a difference now, in our present moment, to be people of peace, to be people of hope in our present world. And we're invited, not just individually, but as communities of hope, to give the world around us a glimpse of the future in our present world, in our families, 
in our friendships, in our workplaces, in our churches, in our schools, at our local footy club, in everything else that happens in the local community. And I just love um, looking at some of the ideas that came through last week when we started to open up this question of what does it look like to be people of shalom, to seek shalom in our communities? And really, this is exactly the same challenge. To be people of shalom in our community means to be people of hope who are living that out in the way that we communicate, in the way that we love, in the way that we serve, in the way that we engage with the world around us. We're not keeping God's future to ourselves. We're living with hope and in in, in anticipation of what God is doing. But we're living that under the very noses of the people in our world so that they can get a glimpse too. And I know Elliot's going to jump back up in a second and he's going to to launch uh, something that's going to get us to think about that. But as we do that, let me just leave you this question. And the question is, is how are we going to allow our hope, our trust in God's power and presence and our anticipation of his future to impact our present world? Let me just pray for us. Father, I just thank you so much for the opportunity we have uh, scattered all around our city and probably further than that this morning to reflect on your goodness to reflect on what you're doing in us and in our world. And we just thank you so much that we have this hopeful future. That as people of hope, that's not contingent on how we're feeling right now or what our situation might be right now, but it's much, much bigger than that. And our hope is not found in ourselves or in that next thing that we might be looking forward to, but our hope is ultimately found in you. Our hope is that you are faithful. Our hope is that every moment or every day you are present with us. And our hope is that you are renewing all things. And amazingly, Father, you draw us into that. You invite us to be part of that. And I pray that you'll help us to see practical ways that we can do that, to be people of hope, not just individuals of hope, but to be communities of hope for our world. So we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name. Amen.